If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 12. We're going to continue our sermon series today called 1159. We're talking about the last minute comebacks and the miraculous saves or last minute saves, miraculous comebacks in the Bible. And this is definitely one of those stories we, we will want to tune into. The title of the message is when God's answer is yes, right? When God's answer is yes. The day I proposed to my wife, uh, I found this out. I experienced this. The surprise of hearing yes. Guys, I want you to listen to me right now. Okay? If you're planning on proposing to a young lady, this is how it's done. (laughs) Okay? So, what happened? Here's what happened. Um, I thought, man, I'm going to plan us a nice picnic. Uh, there on the college campus in Seattle and we're just going to sit and have a picnic and I'm going to pop the question there at the picnic. So she accepted my invitation and we got to the picnic and here's what happened every year when we were in college at the end of the year, close to the end of the year, both of us would get a stack, no kidding, a stack of wedding invitations from our friends who were getting married after college. And so we would exchange them uh, because we didn't both travel in the same circles or didn't all have the same friends. So uh, I decided to take my stack from my inbox And then I made a custom wedding invitation to her own wedding with me. Um, And so, and I put it in the back. And she's she's crazy about mail, man. I tell you, she gets the mail. I never see the mail. I've never seen the mail in 25 years of marriage. And so I just, I I pulled out this stack at the picnic and she grabs it out of my hand and goes, let me see those. (laughs) I said, okay. She starts flipping through them. She goes, oh, that's very nice. Oh, I didn't know they would get married. That's very nice. She gets to the last one and it's addressed to her. She goes, what is this? And then she opened it, and it was a wedding invitation to her own wedding with, with, with me. Now, I want to tell you, what seemed like an epoch of time <laughs> was one-tenth of a second, right? One-tenth of one second. She was surprised. I took her by surprise. She smiled, and in the time it took her to smile and say yes, I thought she's going to say no. <laughs> That's what I thought. I thought, no way. She's going to say no. And She didn't. She said yes, and I put the ring on her finger, and I've been the happiest man in the whole planet for 25 years. But what happens when the answer to what we had hoped, what we had asked, is yes? And that's the kind of text we're going to look at today. The kind of text we're going to look at today is God's answer to the prayer is, yes, I will deliver Peter. Now, um, God does this in a very particular way. And as we're going to see in the story today, the very people, the very people who are praying for Peter's release don't really believe God is going to do it. (laughs) Have you ever prayed a prayer like that where you thought, God, we're just believing and trusting, but then in the back of your mind, you're going, God's probably not going to do this, right? But that's how they are. And then God comes through, and we're going to see today just their shock, their shock that the answer is yes. Now, the purpose of the book of Acts, I want to put this up on the screen, okay? Just to give you a little bit of background on this book. The purpose of this book, Luke wrote this history as a gripping, fast-moving novella, right? He wrote it like an ancient novel, and it just moves that fast. Every story you get to the end of one chapter, you go, oh, what's going to happen in the next chapter? That's how it's written. But he wrote this to show that the gospel message, what he often calls the word of God, right? The gospel message about Jesus flourished despite fanatical opposition and increasing hostility 
toward the church. So there's this escalating pattern of hostility toward the church. And as that happens, the church grows and grows and it flourishes and it thrives and it goes out to the ends of the world. So we pick up our story here in Acts 12 because this story illustrates that theme so perfectly. Verses 1 through 11. So it was, it was about the time, that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John. Now, that, this is not the James that wrote the book of James. That's the brother of Jesus. His name was also Jacob, or James. Uh, but he had James, the brother of the apostle John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, both the leadership and the people, he, perceived, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, which would have been a complete sham. In other words, from Herod Agrippa, the first perspective, Peter's getting the same thing that James got. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. No possible way of escape, no possible way. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Have you ever slept that hard where an angel from God had to wake you up by hitting you? Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, put on your coat... And your sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him, uh, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. Have you ever had a dream state like that where you just woke up at three o'clock in the morning, you didn't realize what was happening? Was you thought you were sleepwalking? He thought he was seeing a vision. And they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of the street, suddenly the angel left him, just evaporated, just left. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. What happens when God comes through like this? When God's answer to what you have prayed for, to what you ask, to what you seek is yes. So we're going to draw out some observations from this story that apply to our Christian life today in the face of loss and in the face of triumph. Number one, our enemy will almost always, most assuredly, attack leaders first. This is his pattern. This is his M.O., to stop the gospel from making headway into Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and now it appears all the way up to the city of Antioch and now beyond, where the gospel was taking hold to stop this, Herod Agrippa I takes a risky chance, and he gathers up the Jewish leaders of this new Christian Jesus movement, and he executes one of their top generals, James. Now remember who James is. Okay, remember who he is. He is one of the inner circle of Jesus' inner circle. In other words, Jesus has 12 disciples that follow him around day and night and live with him. But among the 12, James, Peter, James, and John are three of the inner circle that get to experience things that other disciples don't. For example, Matthew 17. Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And Matthew tells the story that Jesus is transfigured. His clothes and the appearance of his skin become dazzling white and his hair probably just turns bleach white. And they see him standing there talking to Moses and Elijah. 
about his mission. And who got to see that? Peter, James, and John. And so he has been on the inner circle of Jesus' most intimate, intimate uh, uh, leadership. And so now, one of the top generals in in the Jesus movement is dead. He's been executed. This man is gone. And now Peter has been rounded up to meet the same fate. Now, imagine the emotional toll this must have took on the church. Imagine somebody, your governor or somebody from the city, coming in here and arresting like Pastor Daniel and executing him. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Patrick. (laughs) Daniel's like, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) That's okay. And then he's gone. I mean, one of your pastors, gone. One of your leaders. And then they come and get your senior pastor. He's arrested to meet the same fate. Can you imagine the emotional toll this is having? This movement is growing. The Jesus movement is growing like wildfire across the world. And these people are facing two of their top leaders about to be gone. Because of this wicked, evil man named Herod. Let me tell you, Satan's M.O. Is to target the mission critical positions of leadership in your life. Families, he's after dad. He's after dad. Because unfortunately, as dad goes, often as we find, so does the home. He is working overtime to get men to sign up for the cult of leisure, leisure and isolation. And if he can get your husband to sign up for that cult, to join that cult, He will isolate him and destroy him with loneliness, emptiness, and sin. Satan is also hard at work, absolutely hard at work, to destroy this church and every other church in town like it. He wants to destroy us, not necessarily by closing our doors, but by making us into any other image than the image of Jesus. He is working tirelessly to tempt your leaders, me, your pastors, your elders, your deacons. He is working tirelessly to tempt us to become immoral, prideful, judgmental hypocrites who divide into factions over petty nonsense. And if he can do that, he'll keep the doors of this place open forever because he will make disciples that don't look like Jesus. He's happy with that. And he goes for the leadership. He goes for the head. This is what he does. And Peter, his, his fate is in flux here. His fate is in question. Two, the church of Jesus thrives in seasons of blessing and pressure. The book of Acts has this curious alternating pattern. Uh, Acts has this really curious alternating pattern where, where in one chapter you can find that the church experiences success and then at the end of that chapter or right into the next chapter, they experience a setback. It's just this really fascinating alternating pattern between them. Acts 1, for example, is a picture of an apparent setback. An apparent setback. Now, Jesus taught in the amphitheaters of the field, right? To thousands of people gathered on the hillsides from every town in Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the Decapolis. They have come to listen to the miracle man from Nazareth teach. Thousands of people. And in Acts chapter 1, we learn after all of that ministry and all of that healing and all of that salvation given to these people, he has 120 people in his church. What a setback. That's not the kind of thing you put on a ministry resume. Yeah, I whittled a church of thousands down to 120. You probably, (laughs) Jesus probably wouldn't get the job. 
And then in Acts chapter 2 and 3 is triumphant. The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is, descends and is poured out on the people. And thousands of people, just like that, become baptized into Christ and into the church community. Just like that, the church explodes like a grass fire. And it's triumphant. And then Acts chapter 4 comes. When they are dragged before the Sanhedrin and they are tried and they are questioned. Now what's dangerous about this is this is the very Sanhedrin that tried Jesus and sent him off to the Romans to be crucified. And they mean to do the same to these disciples and stop this movement. But they are beaten, flogged, sent away. And Acts chapter 5 comes, the church just grows and grows, but success brings problems, brings great challenges, because there are people in the community who come into that movement, into that fledgling movement. They come in there wanting to exploit the people of God. Two of them were named Ananias and Sapphira. Peter prophesied it, and they both dropped dead. Have you ever sung that song in camp? Sorry, I did. (laughs) But these people are trying to exploit the church. And, this, and, and the end of that story is great fear seized the people in the region so that no one dared join the church. But think about that. No one dares join your church because they're afraid of your church. They're afraid of your pastor. And then in Acts 6, 8, the, the word of God begins to spread again and grow and people come into the faith. In Acts 6 and 8, we're introduced to a man named Stephen. Stephen is only described in the New Testament. The only descriptions of him is that he was full of the Holy Spirit and power. When this guy preached and he taught, the power of the God was there to set the captive free. And the Jews don't like it. And so the Sanhedrin, they grab him and they question him. And he preaches the gospel to him. And they run at him going, ah, la, 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 la. They cannot hear what he has to say because they are so cut to the heart. And they pick up rocks and stone him to death. And in his last final breath, Stephen looks heavenward and sees a vision of Jesus, not sitting but standing at the right hand of the Father, welcoming him into heaven. And now that persecution has become uh, just a thing. And for the next few chapters, that one persecution will dominate the next few chapters because there was a man there, his name is Paul. And Paul was there giving assent to this death, this stoning of this man named Stephen. And now he goes out and he says, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to drag him from house to house, out of house and house, and I'm going to take them all to jail. I'll put every one of them in prison. And then in Acts chapter 9, Jesus meets him on the road to Emmaus, or the Emmaus road, or the road to Damascus, and knocks him off his horse. And when Jesus knocks him off his horse, he is blinded immediately. He meets Jesus, the risen, resurrected Jesus, And he hears the gospel and responds, and and Jesus says, I must show you how much you must suffer for my name. Wow, what a calling. And now Acts 11, 19 is the summary of that first season of the church's life. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. You see what happened. They're in the pressure cooker. They're in the cauldron, and then what happens is they are propelled outward to go and spread the gospel among the Jews. But then a Gentile revival breaks out as well. And you and I are called to flourish in both times of blessing and abundance and times of persecution and pain. We can be blessed in both of those seasons. Number three, God's people are called to earnest, which means solemn, serious, And fervent, which means impassioned and intense prayer. 
Acts 12, 5 says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for God for him. Now, unless you think that the church just all of a sudden got an idea and thought, you know what we should do? We should probably pray because we've never done that before. No, the church doesn't do that. The church has been praying all along and the portrait that Luke gives us in the book of Acts from the very first chapter is that this is a praying church. This is a Bible-believing, praying church. Acts chapter 1, I'll just give you a few passages that show that. Verse 14 says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Verse 24, Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two men you have chosen. What's going on here? They are praying, and they don't even have the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't even been poured out on them, and they are praying their lives and their meetings are characterized by prayer acts 2:42 now this is after the holy spirit is poured out it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching of the old testament and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread which means communion and to prayer yes they they've studied the bible in the light of the revelation of christ and yes they got together and had potlucks you better believe there were some good ones And yes, they broke bread and had communion together and shared the communion meal together, but they are also characterized as people of prayer. Acts 3, 1, it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. I love how incidental that phrase is. Don't you love that? It's just, well, it was the time of prayer, so so they went. This This is the kind of leaders this church has. And then in Acts 4, 24 and 31, it says they raised their voices at the report of the persecution and how God had delivered the apostles. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Verse 31, and after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Folks, We are called to be a people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching of the Old Testament, but also a people who pray and come to God regularly in prayer. Pray for God to work and rescue your leaders. Pray for God to protect your church. Pray to God God that the gospel will go forward into the community and we will make inroads into this community. And God invites us to partner with his sovereignty in that. Number four, God is still sovereign in miraculous answers to prayer. When it comes to miraculous answers to prayer, God is still sovereign. He's still on the throne. He still decides whether it's yay or nay, or not yay. Now let's observe something that's here between the lines. It's tacit. It's implicit in the text. It's clear, but it's strongly implied. Okay, I want to show you that the same church that is characterized by prayer going to God for anything and everything. The same church that is characterized by the word and fellowship and communion and prayer. This same church has been praying both for Stephen and James. You better believe it. And the answer to that prayer was no. The answer to for Peter is yes right now. Right now the answer is yes for Peter. Though later he will be martyred in the faith as well. According to church history. But for James and Stephen, the answer was no. So God still reserves the sovereign right to grant your request or to tell you that's not the way it's going to go. And when God says yes, hallelujah. When God says no or not yet, we praise him for his wisdom. Now, the key to the text is John 21. 
This is an interesting little correlation here. The key to the text is John 21. Because in that text, Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has raised from the dead, and he's cooked him a little fish breakfast. I've never had fish for breakfast. I probably never will, but I'm sure it was great because Jesus made it. And he's on the beach there, the resurrected Jesus, cooked him a little, uh, little campfire fish breakfast. And he's challenging Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Okay, so at the end of that story, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Uh, Jesus prophesies to Peter the manner in which Peter would die. That, that's weird. He tells Peter, this is how you're going to die. You're going to live to an older age. He says, you're going to get older and then men are going to lead you out and then you are going to stretch out your hands, your arms, and give your life for me. Right? And what is Peter's immediate reaction to that? He turns around and looks at John and says, what about him? What about that guy? And here's Jesus' response, verse 22. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Mind your own business and follow me. That's the emphasis of the text. You do what I've called you to do. But the key to the text is this phrase, if I want him. You see, the sovereign God reserves the right to answer the prayer and say yes or to say that's not my will for you in your case. And I don't think there's a prayer that should escape your lips where you don't expect God to answer your prayer, yes. Every time I come to the Lord, I just try, look, I try. I try to come boldly and I try to come in faith and I, I try to come trusting God because I don't know what the counsel of the Lord is. I don't know the counsel of the divine mind. I just know mine. And according to my mind, I want things to work out for me. So I pray my will be done. But as I'm praying for my will to be done, my default is always, but not my will be done if it's not your will. I pray that God would reveal his will in my circumstances and in my life. So with every prayer, we should ask for the best possible results. And at the same time, we should defer to the sovereign wisdom of God. And so here's what happens is when the answer is yes, I rejoice, I celebrate, I say, thank God for your mercy. Thank God for healing my wife. Thank God for bringing healing to our family. Thank God for your goodness and your mercy. But Lord, when the answer is no or not yet or not the way I thought, then thank God I glory in your wisdom because Paul says he's the only wise God. He didn't say Jeff is the only wise God. Jeff doesn't know anything. Jeff just knows what he wants. But the only wise God sees the beginning from the end and his decisions are good and we trust them. Now, let me read you the rest of the story, okay? Verse 12. It says, when this had dawned on him, so he's out there, he's on the street. He has, the angel has walked him down the street. And it's probably a cool breeze that kind of hit him and he woke up and he realized, oh man, God has really delivered me. It says, when, the angel, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked uh, at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda, a little servant girl there, her name is Rhoda, she came out to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. So she didn't even let him in. This is a high comedy here for the ancient oriental, okay? The ancient oriental audience is laughing out loud at this because it's so funny. Now, uh, he says... 
they say, you're out of your mind. So we're praying for him, but we don't really believe that God's going to do it. Uh, and then they told her, uh, when she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Because back then in the first century, uh, Jews uh, had this strange belief that every single person had a guardian angel that looked exactly like them. Kind of a weird belief, but that's what they believed. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He told them the whole story, what the Lord had done. And he says, tell James. Now, this is not the James that was martyred. This is Jesus' half-brother, James, who wrote the book of James. He says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. He said, and then he left uh, for another place. That's the key phrase right there. He left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they all be executed. What a magnanimous leader. Number five, sometimes persecution and pressure can lead to new ministry opportunities. Sometimes the situation that you are facing right now can lead you into new vistas and new horizons, and new opportunities that you would never have thought to have been the case. Now, the key to the story is verse 17, where it says, and Peter left for another place. Yes, God answers the prayer. Yes, God comes through, but his life will never be the same. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem. From chapter 12 on to the end of the book, Peter passes off the scene. Peter's influence is not as strongly felt, and it passes to Paul. We only see him in the book of Acts one more time in Acts chapter 15, where after he has done much ministry among the Gentiles, he comes back to give a report to the Jewish elder board, the pastors there, the council in Jerusalem. Now, what do we know? What can we piece together from the New Testament happened to Peter? Well, we know he ended up in Antioch. We know he went that far, way up north to Antioch, to minister among the Hellenized Jews. We know that because Peter... Uh, Paul uh, refers to a story in Galatians chapter 2 that he and Peter had it out in Antioch. So we know he made it that far after this. We also can surmise that he made it as far as Corinth in Greece because there's a Kepha cult in Greece. In Greece, they're following the teachings of Peter, Cephas, uh, in the way that he teaches the Bible. So there's a whole group of people there that say, yeah, Peter's my man, he's my favorite teacher. And they align themselves with him as their primary teacher. Now look at how Peter starts his own book in 1 Peter. This is what he says in his own epistles. He says, God's elect to, this, this is written to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And in the last chapter, he greets them and says, to my fellow exiles. What happened to Peter? What happened to him? He left Jerusalem. He never thought he would. He left Jerusalem and Judea, a place that was in his wheelhouse, man. He was a Palestinian Jew, probably didn't know much Greek at all. And God forced him through this persecution out into the world to take the gospel out into the world. And I'm telling you, sometimes persecution and pressure can lead you to new territory, new opportunities, new vistas, and new horizons that God has for you. But you have to go through the persecution. You have to go through it in order to discover it. And God wanted the apostles to take the gospel to Semitic peoples and Gentile Judea converts in Antioch and to the rest of the Gentile nations. And this situation was a catalyst to launch Peter out. He would not have chosen this. God's answer for you might be yes, but your life will never be the same. God is leading you on. 
So much so that when Peter returns from his Gentile missions, he is happy to report his ministry among them. So here's, here are my application questions from this text for you today. The first one is this. If the dark and shadowy enemy of your soul, the devil, the Bible teaches is real. If the devil is going to derail you, what people of influence, what leaders, what people of influence in your life will he use to do it? Pray for them. Pray for them. Two, since the church thrives in seasons of both blessings, abundance, and pain, persecution, what ought to be our expectation for Christ's community church, for our church? This is our church. I believe we're in a season of blessing and abundance right now. I believe right now we're in a season of harvest, actually. And I think we should expect that God will bring in the harvest, that more believers will be made, more disciples will be made, and people will be strengthened, growing in their faith, and strengthened, connected in community. But what happens when we enter a season of hard times, when persecution comes? You know, you make inroads into the community, into the devil's territory, and he will push back hard on you. Number three, Would you characterize your prayer as earnest, fervent, desperate, and bold? Would you? I often have to check myself on this. I often have to challenge myself. Jeff, don't you sit there and mumble out some bored prayer. You are talking to the almighty God of the universe who created The universe, he spoke and the worlds came into existence. Don't you dare sit there and mumble out some anemic, weak prayer to him. You come desperate and you come bold and you come before his throne believing that he will answer your requests. Believing that he will and then trusting his sovereignty and his wisdom to do what he will do. And fourthly, have you asked God for the best possible results and deferred to his sovereign will? And lastly, is there a door of ministry that is closing to you now? Is there something that characterized your life for a while? And it's closing. That door is closing. And it's clear that God wants to open another door, another path, another way for you. And you may not even know what it is yet. Peter didn't know. God's answer was yes, and it changed his life, the trajectory of his entire life. And it might be true for you as well. Will you pray with me? Father, we just come this morning, and uh, we're not about to sit here and mumble out a bunch of bored, anemic, weak prayers. God, we're going to sit here, and we're going to pray with boldness and desperation in our soul that you would come through for us. And God, we thank you for answers that are yes and amen Hallelujah. We celebrate what you have done. We celebrate all that has come from you, the Father of heavenly lights, because it's all good. But God, we also trust your wisdom. We trust your wise, sovereign supervision of our lives. And God, the answer may not be what we want right now, but, and we can't see all the good long-term that you're doing, but we trust your care. We trust your wisdom. And Father, would you help us as a church as a people, as individuals, to go out into this community in Idaho Falls, would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to make inroads into this community so that lives will change and people will be touched by the gospel of Jesus and change forever? Would you help us do that? And would you help us withstand 
by the shield of faith, would you help us withstand the pushback from darkness that we surely will get? Help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.